this, that could be the one that we lose. The one that we lose because like the files are corrupted or something. It's just because we're too embarrassed to <laughs> yeah. put it out, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's when we this go back to the one that gets us cancelled. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But little do people know that we actually did wind up actually finishing our capital uh, reading series, volume one. But uh, in reality, actually, that's lost media never put out. <laughs> Mercifully so. Mercifully so. Yeah. Um, I have no, nothing in the way of introductory banter, I don't no, think, other no than preamble. to say, you know, Broadbean update. Most of them have been eaten, which is a little bit upsetting by mice, which is really beginning to piss me off because it's like, what do I do about mice? Like, I'm not mm. going to kill them yeah. because I was like... going to suggest some kind of pellet gun. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. It's not what I expected from you. The, the vegan, some sort of weapon. The vegan says. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> vegan no more. You fuck with my broad beans. We're done. <laughs> but it's very annoying. They're digging them all up and they've sprouted. They've gotten to about an inch, two inches tall. And then they're digging up the bean that's still part of it, digging up the whole plant, and then just like gnawing on it and eating half of it. And it's just like, come on. <laughs> so savage. <laughs> yeah, it is. Not just, like, digging, not just digging up the bean so that it never comes up. They're like deliberately <laughs> like half eating it and then leaving it like some grizzled, horrible yeah, exactly. trophy. And taking a shit behind. all over my plot. It's just like, thanks, yeah. guys. But actually, if they yeah. wanted to do that, I'd be fine with it. But... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Fox is coming anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How Jack gets hantavirus. Do you have hantavirus out here? What is that? Okay, maybe not. It's <laughs> yeah. a thing that mice can I mean, give you, like mice oh, poop. Okay. If yeah, it's a whole I thing. Know. I mean, it might be a thing. I'm, yeah, I'm a quite blase <laughs> in my concerns around that kind of thing. You know, that kind of thing. Viruses, the viruses, like diseases, you know, tetanus. What's that? <laughs> tetanus. Yeah, I tetanus mean, is bullshit. Not that it's the same thing, but you know, <laughs> I'm suspicious. You know. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, sure, you gotta be suspicious of these things. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> this will be the last media episode of auxiliary statements. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We start yeah. being tetanus deniers. Yeah. Yeah. It's all right. I, yeah, I'm gonna I'm I wanna bring back miasmas, I think. Like <laughs> <laughs> I think that's. I think that's my thing. What is a miasma? Is that you know, just like a swoon? Faint? No, it's when like um, it's, <laughs> they used to they used to think disease was spread by bad smells. You know, Some, oh, I see. like yeah, everything okay. everything was something in the air. It's funny you say that. I think we should bring back the ether as a as concept. Yeah, I think it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? Why not? We should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We should just. We should come up with increasingly like ludicrous like beliefs but they're not they're not like common <laughs> uh like conspiracies or paranoia like the flat earth or whatever yeah. like, entirely harmless like <laughs> that's my prediction if we do 2024 predictions my predictions is like belief in miasmas comes back or like the ether comes back as like conspiratorial popular science like yeah, yeah. either that or yeah we just try and weave in how many nonsenses <laughs> can we weave into pre-existing like webs of conspiratorial yeah yeah all paranoia. i know dan is that people didn't start getting tetanus and still they started getting vaccines that's mm. all I know. <laughs> still they started putting fluoride in the water then all of a sudden you can't handle rusty nails yeah mm. yeah <laughs> yeah rust so it's a government conspiracy yeah. yeah you never saw rust before obama that's all i'll say what are you gonna do <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. oh goodness um dan it's just not for me it's fine it's not, it's, just, it's not for me. I can have my beliefs. You can have yours. You know, that's my favorite response to like conspiracy things getting called out. 
So no. uh-huh. I was thinking about this actually today. There are fun conspiracies that are like, ha ha, kooky, kind of fun. And then there are just like very just like obviously there are like bad conspiracies, like, you know, like obviously anti-Semitism comes to mind. But then there are also just like conspiracies that are just like so insane that it's like this isn't even fun anymore. Boring. Boring, yeah. Boring conspiracies. Oh, oh, okay. They're bad. I don't want the boring <laughs> conspiracies. I don't know. Sorry, no, insane. Insane, just ones that are like they're hiding extra pyramids from us in the jungles of Guatemala. You know what I mean? It's like, well, they're not, and why would they do that? <laughs> and who's they? It's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're they're the right answers. To, they're the right questions to ask to all of these things, aren't they? Indeed. Who's doing that and why? <laughs> Who is doing that and why? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. I'm sure we'll do a Moshe Pastone episode one of these days to get the answers mm. to that. But mm. I get the feeling I think, it's often I th- the same. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a bit sympathetic to the like, they're just my beliefs because, not because that's the stand. That's not not the rhetorical statement that I would make. But <laughs> like, just I, I often want to just leave people alone with their madnesses. You know? Just, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like you do you. You carry on. It's fine. Hey, it's, it's that's clearly, like when it's clearly people... working. You know, it's clearly working for you. It's working for you. <laughs> it's working for you. You haven't vaccinated your kids. Good for you. You know, respect. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but like the world is a different, difficult place to like exist. This in, is true. You know? I mean, we all have our madnesses. We all have yeah, our own yeah. madnesses. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've been trying to figure out directly and indirectly social labor time for like three <laughs> months now. You know, and anytime anybody asks me, what it, it is, no, there's like, a difference between being mad and being driven mad. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're being driven mad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being driven mad. Yeah. yeah, by them. Who's them? Yeah, yeah, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same people with the pyramids, probably. By, mm. by the voice of Isaac Rubin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Uh dear. Uh, um, uh, I think we. I think we've transitioned from like preamble to just ramble. Yeah, yeah now we are just <laughs> rambling. Exactly. Uh dear. Uh-huh. We had for the listener. Uh, Dan just came to town, hung out with Dan. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Um, we were going to record a podcast in person. We had that idea before you came, and then immediately, I think I got off the call at least and was like, "There's no way we're gonna be able to make that happen." Like, I haven't finished the reading. Dan, you haven't finished the reading. This is yeah. When <laughs> that was the when plan, am I gonna though. do it? Yeah. yeah. The energy would have been high. I, I, been high. I came all the way. I traveled all the way from the like <laughs> westmost corner of the country to the eastmost <laughs> corner of the country entirely to buy a copy of EndNotes 5. <laughs> you know, yeah. The, if the function of a system is what it is, that was the purpose of your yeah. trip out yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I did it, you know. And you did it. So <coughs> You did do it. There we go. Um, okay. Well, enough of the rambling. Let's get into it. Dan. Speaking of EndNotes 5, you didn't buy it for no reason at all. It, we're back to EndNotes. We're back to EndNotes 5. This podcast, we exclusively read things from EndNotes 1 and 5. Nothing in between. Um, the ones that are in print. The ones, oh, yeah, I suppose exactly. four. You could probably get four. I think you can get four and three. You just can't get two, which is the one I want to get. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Maybe I just need to shift my predilections for ultra-left uh, communizer publications. Go to the one. Who's the guy that we read the... Um, uh the thing about turkey what was his name what was his name the guy okay i'm gonna have to look it was a good name lauren goldner that was his name as soon as you said good name i was like it was a good name um he has a journal i think it's called insurgent notes or something like that or at least he writes for it maybe that'll be mine of the future definitely a left communist journal (laughs) it is yeah exactly that i was actually the idea of just like having a journal called something notes like 
there are many of them on left wing circles. It is kind of a little bit of like, a, I'm just asking questions kind of thing. Like, there's just <laughs> like, these are just notes. I don't know. You know, could yeah, be right, yeah, could yeah, be yeah. wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, um, it's good, right? Like, if, the, if, the, if they come to nothing, then they, they're just your notes. And, exactly. And if, if you become like a world renowned leader or scholar then they're they're the thing which people sift through for like exactly. the mystical knowledge that you never actually were able to publish you know yeah exactly they're like wow yeah. this guy couldn't spell things like that <laughs> um okay okay let's get into it listeners will know that last time we read from endnotes which we re- we've read endnotes one in its totality which was brutal interesting but particularly brutal and then we read uh, another essay from endnotes five by Jasper Burns. It was called Revolutionary Motives. It was very interesting. And now we're back to EndNotes 5 because EndNotes is perfect for us in that it's just, you know, essays and you can kind of pick them up and read them and not really have to read much else. Um, So we read uh, To Abolish the Family from EndNotes 5 by M.E. O'Brien, subtitled The Working Class Family and Gender Liberation in Capitalist Development. this is a lot of like, this is a topic that we haven't really touched on. And I mean, if you go back and read the Communist Manifesto, like there's a reason that the idea, you know, abolish the family, that it gets mentioned, right? And it's obviously like an important aspect of working class lives, families. But I think that this phrase in socialist, anarchist, communist circles, right? Like the idea of abolishing the family gets thrown out there as kind of like a are you a real communist? Are you a real socialist? You know, or do you believe in abolishing the family? And then when you kind of try and question what it is that that actually means, you oftentimes can't get proper answers. And it just means we're just going to end the family, man. And it's like, well, is something taking its place? What does that mean? What is the family even today? You know, what purpose does it serve in capitalist society? So we wanted to read this one because it was actually a really good um, interrogation of like all of those questions. And then some kind of interesting like, theses are put forward about what it could mean and the kind of like historic the like changing dynamics of what it is that this phrase actually means so i i really appreciated this um i thought it was really really good and i'm excited to talk about it with you dan what do you think yeah i mean i i thoroughly enjoyed it um and i think yeah you're quite right one of the things that really escapes um is a pure sort of moral critique of the family it's not it's not a this isn't a like utopian tract um, or a kind of like a purely destructive screed, you know, it's not like a, we have to destroy this thing because like destroying um, elements of capitalist society are good in and of themselves. Um, and what's really wonderful about this text is that it interweaves the question of family abolition with a constant critique of capitalism um, and also puts the question of family abolition in the context of various different stages of the development of capitalism, and not only where capitalism was at um, in terms of how it was um, transforming or using or creating or destroying um, fam- family and familial relations, but also in the ways in which working class and revolutionary movements responded to that, and so it does a really good job of both marrying a sort of like creative, liberating, sort of revolutionary, somewhat utopian conception of what it would mean to abolish the family. And it it pairs that very nicely with a critique of capitalism 
and um, a discussion of how family abolition is necessary, um, but also happening part of the constant churning and changing um, of the capitalist mode of production itself. So we, um, yeah, it's a really enjoyably historically nuanced text. And I think that's probably why it, well, it was why I enjoyed it. And I think it's probably why it's quite good that we read it. And I think often why the EndNotes text quite often appeal to us is that you often have this sort of like, well, they often feel quite Brenner inspired. So they have this sort of like yes. his, historical um, uh, leaning or nuance that um, appeals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's funny, before we actually get into that kind of historical nuance, there was one short thing that I wanted to mention that kind of made me, it kind of gave me a little bit of pause. So obviously, you don't have to really be like a communist to see that family dynamics can often be quite negative. Um, but instead of coming right out the gate and just being like, the family sucks, it's terrible, we need to destroy the family and everything that's associated with it, She's really good. Emmy O'Brien is really good at acknowledging right up front that there actually are also positives with a family, right? And and there are kind of like the family exists because it's kind of a necessity under capitalism, right? In its current form, I should say, even though that form has constantly changed and is in the process of a pretty, like, I would say major change right now. But the one thing I just wanted to run past you is I thought that that was interesting because she says that the family can act as like a source of solace, but also despair. And I was like, oh, that just made me think immediately of kind of when we read the Gilbert Achkar about religion, right? Where he was like, religion, he didn't come right out and be like, oh, religion sucks, man. I'm a Marxist. I'm an atheist. You know, he was like, well, it can be the opiate of the masses. And then he had his funny quip where he was like, it can also be the cocaine of the masses. It can make people like act. It can give people energy and spontaneity to act in like a utopian way. And I, I just thought that was interesting. I was like, well, you can actually, there's nuance there. There's actually the same thing is going on with the family. Um, you can't just come right out and be like, the family sucks. We're going to abolish the family because like nobody would listen to you. And I, why would they? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And there's um, there's an important um, reference made in the early bits of this text when the author's talking about uh, Marx and Engels' contribution um, and the period of the sort of, the, the 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 development of family relations as they were affected by the early onset of capitalism um, in that early section of this text where they talk about Marx and Engels' approach being to what they mean by abolition quite often is like, can't remember what the, what the correct German term is. Maybe it's Aufhebung, I don't know. Oh um, God, if it is, let's sort of like, that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but entailing a, both a destruction but a transformation of a thing um and things containing that contradictory relationship that you were just describing about religion and as is described in the in the discussion of the family as well having this contradictory existence yeah i um i think the thing that stood out to me right away reading this was that she comes out and is like um not only have the like horizons of what it means to have like gender freedom, sexual freedom, personal autonomy changed over time as it relates to like family dynamics, but also like the very phrase it's of to abolish the family itself has changed and it's gotten different meaning. And it's exactly what you were saying, right? It's like she connects what's really good about this piece is that she connects those different meanings that have happened in history 
to the state of the workers' movement, or maybe not workers' movement, to the state of the class struggle, I should say, right? Um, in really interesting ways. And she periodizes it, um, these different kind of horizons for family abolition and what that means in four distinct periods. And for people, I would say, if you don't, if you don't want to read this, just because it's another essay to read and everybody's, nobody has any time, just go check out on the second page of this. She has this little like table where she puts forward, she periodizes different, you know, periods of the class struggle, what was going on in the class struggle, what the dominant family form was, and what communist visions of family abolition actually were. And you'll see that these have changed like radically, right, from the first one, which is the 1830s to the 1880s, right? So like early capitalist class struggle, not early capitalism, but like early class struggle when we think of like, you know, steam engine and all that stuff, the adoption of the steam engine textile mills in England, right? Then the next one is the 1890s to the 1950s, the 1960s to the 1970s, so much shorter one, and then the 70s to now. And I think that you can see, at least with that last one, like um, a lot of these do line up with pretty distinct periods in terms of class struggle and global class struggle. And that last one, 1970s to now, we can basically say like the neoliberal period to the end of the neoliberal period, whenever people want to like, you know, crisis of profitability in the 1970s to now. And then she ties that into... um, what it means to have gender freedom and family abolition um, at that period. So should we just take some of those in turn? Should we start with the early one beginning with the 1830s and kind of what families even were back then? Yeah, I think um, the place I'd kind of like to start with this is the the brief discussion that's given around um, the relative differences between the functioning of the family under feudalism and the functioning of the family under the early stages of the onset of capitalism and the early stages of the industrial revolution um because and a, a more and a, i guess suppose a more um broader observation to make that the author of this text is making um is that there's a degree to which the family doesn't necessarily need to take any particular type of form under capitalism and Primarily, that's because of the way in which the appropriation of value has been transformed from the the end of feudalism and into capitalism. The author pairs this to the fundamental nature of the value-producing mechanism of feudalism compared to capitalism. So as we've talked about many times before, like feudalism required a certain degree of violence, um, that was the appropriative violence that was done by at first a feudal lord and then in some ways the absolute state, which sort of came along with um, Pike or whatever as a sort of tax collector backed up by purely the threat of violence to say we have you are due we are due a certain amount of taxation or a certain quantity of your product or you owe us a certain amount of your labor um, and what backed up that relationship was a an appeal to force on behalf of the ruling class um and the point that the um, o'brien makes in this text is that there was a relative um parity in terms of like the types of labor that was done by um men and women within the traditional feudal household um most people would do agricultural labor if it was indeed the case that they were peasants um and Although the, the the sort of the father was the head of the household and had a certain uh, recourse to violence, that they choose to take it. That sort of like patriarchal control of the family mirrored in a lot of ways the patriarchal and violent control of the lord or the king 
Um, so the sort of family relationship mirrored the social and reproductive relationships of the mode of production itself. Um, obviously, under capitalism, uh, the appropriation sort of the of the labor of the working class by the bourgeoisie takes place under economic conditions and not under sort of extra economic violent ones. So um, the surplus is taken away at the point of production in the difference between the value that's produced by the worker in contrast to the wage that they're paid. Um, so as a result of that liberation of the mode of production from and a directly violent relationship, um, you get to the point where the family doesn't necessarily have to take on that form. Um, it certainly does in the early phases of capitalism. Um, it transforms, it um, uses violence in different ways, it relies on uh, different relationships, but there's a sort of fundamental economic difference between the two modes of production, which allows for then all of the different forms of familial relationships and how they intersect with economic relationships that are then described in the rest of this text yeah i'm always i'm always confused like when we've read stuff about kind of like patriarchal familial conditions under feudalism we read this in the silvia federici a while ago too and the same thing happened where it's like on one hand the children and the wife were literally property of the husband right of the dad and obviously there are all sorts of violence that came across come along with that but then on the other hand it's also like but there wasn't as much gender division of labor and that had its positives and also like silvia frederici made the point that like maybe even women were allowed to keep you know their own plots of land however small they might have been their own sections of plots of land and so there's a little bit of like i don't know maybe it's just me not reading closely enough but i do get a bit confused whenever we try and talk about this stuff as it relates to feudalism because a lot of it kind of seems like, do we have the data to really know what this means? I mean, maybe it's just a matter of like, what is feudalism also and when and where are we talking about in this like 800 years? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or several centuries. And like, are we talking about Western Europe? What part and when was this always the same? Um, but yeah, you're right. You're right to definitely point out that like it definitely it mirrored the kind of political expropriation that the surplus took, right? Sure. And I, I suppose what I've just described there is a very clean... Uh, distinction and whether surely the truthfulness of that if it exists is perhaps more nuanced when you were talking then I was just real wondering whether there's actually a relationship the other way whereby the breakdown of that sort of uh, peasant family relationship and therefore also the uh, broader social relations of feudalism whether that allowed for capitalism to actually develop a more expansive use of violence you know like as Federici describes the the process of the oppression of women and also the uh, clamping down and crushing of diverse like familial or sort of sexual relationships that might have been more possible under feudalism actually become less possible under capitalism or at least the early stages of capitalism. Capitalism in some ways maybe has a greater recourse to violence if it needs it. Um, but it serves a different end, I suppose. So, yeah, there's definitely more nuance than what I've just described, I suppose. <laughs> well, I think it's also, like, it also can't be because I think that, like, the transition was so chaotic 
especially in Western Europe at this time. I mean, it was chaotic whenever capitalism came everywhere, obviously, for different reasons. But like the transition, whether that be because of the enclosures or because of, you know, the rise of the industrial city in Northern England, like we get, you know, examples of, you know, Engels's writing coming from either the condition of the working class in England or just various letters where he's just like, whoa, this is sketchy going into the streets. Like it's, he makes it seem like, he's like, there's poop everywhere. There are people being gay in some of these houses. Like there's no families at all. Whoa, this is crazy. But I mean, the kernel of truth in all of that, other than yes, it was an incredibly like bad time to be a prole and your life expectancy was very short. It's just that this was all chaotic. So maybe us like trying to tie it down to one specific thing, like gender roles, you know, the switch was flipped is is not really true and i mean yeah i don't know it's just an example of any moment of social crisis economic or social crisis at any point i mean you can have a crisis of a mode of production that doesn't result in the end of that mode of production but uh brings about a more chaotic scenario which is then requires a greater deployment of violence and force to maintain it you know and um, like there are periods of capitalism where that is evident mm. i guess yeah and also just like this is a question of subsumption as well right like it's not like the like the family the capitalist nuclear family form for as long as it existed didn't come into being overnight and obviously there was a question of like a transitional phase where some of these different forms might have existed at the same time that's fairly obvious but you know it, it makes kind of studying these things very difficult but i think that the name of the game is definitely how chaotic all of these burgeoning capitalist systems uh, cities were. Then that kind of gets us into her first point about this first period, kind of the 1830s to the 1880s, um, which is that like there was a massive crisis of social reproduction and of the reproduction of the working class right around the 1830s, which is funny. When have we read about the 1830s before? That couldn't possibly have anything to do with the introduction of the steam engine, could it? I wonder if that, I wonder why that happened. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because like Capitalists very quickly realize that workers are literally dying too quickly to actually be reproduced. They're like Marx and Engels, when they write about this stuff and when they're actually good on it, because oftentimes they're kind of quite bad. But when they talk about the family during this time, they say the family literally only exists in the bourgeoisie. They're the only ones who are able to have stable families. Look around the streets of Manchester, dude. They're like, go up to Bolton. It's fucked up up there. You know what I'm saying? Like, they'll just be like, these people don't have the capability of having a family, you know? Um, and so that kind of leads us interestingly into like the endnotes' discussion here of the workers' movement, and then in brackets derogatory because it's endnotes, um, and the kind of like what role the workers' movement wound up playing in the demands kind of like for a family and for respectability, and how almost immediately after Marx and Engels called for, maybe even in like during when they called for the abolition of the family in the communist manifesto you immediately see the workers movement as such start to be like well maybe we actually should be fighting for the patriarchal wage and all of these things and this is the first really interesting periodization that she does here which is like you see immediately the kind of horizons of freedom and liberty as it relates to gender and you know the family and everything changes <laughs> because of the state of the class struggle absolutely yeah um, and I guess it's an interesting case in the work, an initial early case, in fact, I suppose, of the workers' movement stepping in, in some ways, to salvage and rescue capitalism. Like 
as being some ways like a socially conservative force in the sense that as you just identified there was this crisis of reproduction of the working class like um the, re the working class just wasn't given wasn't um which basically just wasn't able to socially reproduce itself like the family disintegrated you couldn't raise children children were dying in in factories or there wasn't enough food to sort of like on the wages that workers were earning to meaningfully raise children to a sufficiently healthy age so that they could actually then go on to continue to work be future generations of workers for capitalism um and so you get this union of the sort of like socialist demand for improved conditions um for workers and also you get a collaboration between that and other sort of bourgeois and liberal social reformers that realize that uh change needs to be made and the you you you're correct to point out that um respectability is an important part of this process one of the one of the reasons i suppose why the workers movement would choose to begin to argue for what would come to be the sort of like single wage earning um father-led patriarchal family is that if you can ally yourselves with the sort of like social norms of other bourgeois liberal reformers you can um make a sort of moral argument for this is the way that we can um improve the moral standing of the working class and it becomes an argument that like liberal bourgeois reformers can um attach onto and then also it contributes to the incre increase increasing respectability of the workers movement under um normal politics right like workers are suddenly a workers party is suddenly allowed to exist in lots of countries and they're um able to be representatives and be in parliaments and be ministers and what have you um they're able to take up a responsible place in the governing of the state and and effectively the governing of the capitalist state in a way which in the 19th century uh, would have been totally rejected because most um rich bourgeois uh, people just thought of the working class as being morally debased and ignorant and uh, just totally incapable of any of the things that would be necessary for the adequate and proper political representation, I suppose. Yeah. And, and it's good that you bring that up because, you know, because this is endnotes, like they're going to be saying if that was the goal, it's almost like forget that they're just they think that the, the purpose of socialism is to take control of the state and then do socialism or whatever put all that to the side like the critique here is that they're seeking a like totalizing of the working class uh of the working class like everybody becomes working class as opposed to what Ennotes would say which is like well you need to actually be abolishing that clash and doing the self-abolition thing where nobody is of the working class right but exactly what you're saying like this the respectability stuff is really interesting. And at first, when I was reading this, I was like, this feels a little idealistic. Like, are they saying that the, this change in the family form and the demands that the working class movement was making were because they wanted to be more like the bourgeoisie? Like, surely it had to be something more material than that. And she is saying that it's something more material than that, right? Like, it was the state of the class struggle, of the workers' movements, of demands for better wages, of demands for, like, literal houses, <laughs> you know, and, like, plumbing and water. Like, all of these things were tied up in the demands of like, you know, wanting to ally themselves with more liberal bourgeois, like progressive types, right? And this kind of, the way that this affects the workers' movement kind of finds its like uh, 
like apotheosis almost in Kautsky because Kautsky comes out and says like, you know, somebody must have accused, well, you know what socialists want? They just want to abolish the family. And Kautsky comes out in either this letter or this declaration or something. And it's like, whoa, where'd you hear that? Socialists don't want to abolish the family. We want nothing more than respectable, you know, patriarchal heterosexual relationships. I don't know what you're talking about. We don't want to abolish any of this stuff. And it's just so interesting that it's like, you know, say, I don't know. I'm actually here interested to hear what you made of what Marx and Engels thought about this, the kind of primary source sightings of a lot of this. Engels was like good on some stuff and then just completely missed the marks on others. Um, there's a very funny letter where he sends to Marx where he's like, hey, you know, this guy we've been working with is gay. What's the deal with that, man? And it's like, yeah, okay, Engels, maybe spend your time writing about something more important. But um, it's funny because these demands for like bourgeois respectability do, as Emmy O'Brien says, wind up basically just recreating the family it's like the call to abolish the family then winds up becoming a husband and a wife free to work with kids in a heterosexual monogamous relationship it's like was that what we meant by abolish the family really because that just sounds like the family yeah there's there's two very distinct trajectories for the development of a potentially socialist or communist conception of the family and also underlying that what would be considered to be a full flourishing of sort of human, um, social, familial, and also amorous relationships, right? And it's sort of clearly Engels's perspective on this, and I, I, I suppose Marx's as well, given that their analysis of the conditions that they're observing of capitalism in the 19th century is that... Um, capitalism is making impossible the maintenance of sort of like complete loving um like uh, familial relationships um i mean in their understanding like heterosexual relationships um what's the word i'm looking for monogamous relationships <laughs> um for Engels, the sort of like what would result from a transition to communism with regards to um, familial relationships would be a return or a sort of triumphing of what he considers to be a natural form of um, human relationship, which is heterosexual and monogamous in his conception. Um, but that's what he conceive he can conceive when uh, the fetters upon those relationships that capitalism presents are taken away. Um, the author of this makes a really interesting point that maybe you can look to what was happening to working class families, what was happening to working class communities and working class social relationships. The adaptions that were being made to allow it to survive might have actually contained the sort of like um, early flourishing of some sign of some potentially totally different and revolutionary conception of um familial relationships and one that she says is basically crushed by the workers movement and the workers movements uh, allying with other bourgeois forces one of the things we've not really talked about very much so far is the references made to familial and social relations as they existed under the conditions of north american slavery um because o'brien sort of pairs the destruction of the working class family that happens in Western Europe under the conditions of the Industrial Revolution pairs that with a totally different but also um, 
parallel destruction of the family that necessarily comes about with slavery, right? Like um, nobody's child, like the, the children of slaves don't belong to their parents. They're a potential commodity for the slave owners. Um, relationships in whatever form can be broken up at any moment by somebody being sold or, um, or what have you. So it was impossible for monogamous relationships to exist um but what that resulted in is a proliferation of new familial relationships and even after um the emancipation of the slaves um what it was that those former slaves want went on to want to form as familial and communal relationships didn't necessarily coincide with Engels' conception of like this is the normal way that human beings form familial relationships. Um, they didn't want to form families. They didn't want to raise children in the same way. That isn't to say that they didn't want to have children, but like they maybe wanted to uh, raise them in broader familial units or broader social units that were in some ways analogous to the methods for uh, maintaining a family and raising children that had existed under the conditions of slavery. So um, Abreu makes an interesting point that like out of the adverse conditions of capitalist social relations, those relationships were producing new working class led um, potential alternatives that didn't achieve their full flourishing, obviously um, in direct contradiction to what Marx and Engels said, I suppose. Yeah. And there's also like, something to be said i'm glad you brought that up because there is also something to be said like you could read this and think you know um this is all very teleological first you have this phase of the family then you have that phase of the family then you have this other one but she goes to like great lengths to point out no there was always like subversion going on there's always like queer subversion or as you're saying like different types of families being formed she gives examples of like homosexual relationships in the American military during World War One, World War II. She gives examples of like cross-dressing or trans men and women during the like, you know, period that we were just discussing 1830s to 1880s. You know, she gives this example of two very colorful sounding characters. What were their names? Fanny and Stella, who were so-called Mary Ann's, which was basically to say like, as far as I can tell, like I think prostitutes or courtesans who were men dressed up as women, but it's unclear whether or not they were like, identified with a different gender or whether they were just cross-dressing or something but it goes to show that there was always like some kind of subversion going on it just kind of depended on the state of the class struggle what the expression of those subversions to the you know bourgeois family norm would be right um and it would take like a long time to really see like radical queer movements um on the big stage right like you, you know you would always see different things going on on a relatively small to even i suppose maybe large levels but like it wasn't until maybe as she says here the 1960s to 1970s that you start to see like mass radical queer movements or like feminist movements um so maybe we should move on then just to talk about the russian revolution because this was really interesting this this took like a different tact to the kind of workers movement kautsky-esque kind of like totalizing of the working class um uh, what I say, the working class form, the, the working class like uh, existence, um, making it totalizing. Basically, in the Russian Revolution, you started to get um, certain progressive 
things, mainly led by Alexandra Kollontai, who is such a like such an interesting person. Oh my God, and her whole life and the different things that the early Bolsheviks, when they took power, were able to implement. Um, things like canteens or you know socializing reproductive labor in you know things like canteens making foods or in you know laundries things like this so that women could basically get into the workforce but she criticizes this because she's saying that in this phase even though this was quite a like radical step in the direction of quote-unquote abolishing the family abolishing the family then just became the full proletarianization of collectivizing by collectivizing reproductive labor and not abolishing bourgeois society, which is what she says is kind of like the whole point of actually like, you know, abolishing the family and the different ways in which they tried to do this early on, because eventually they all stop were so interesting. And it does seem like most of them, even though they're supported by Lenin at first, um, were spearheaded mainly by Colin Ty and people like her. So it, was, it was really fascinating. Sure. Yeah. And I guess it's at this point that it's worth, um, commented on something that's been in my head which is like if you hear family abolition and you're thinking about what would that mean under communism under people's sort of like first instinctive reaction of what they think communism is it might maybe that'll imply like nobody knows who their parents are and like i don't know um the state basically will take responsibility for all aspects of um raising children and all sort of like social relationships will in intersect in some way um a sort of like uh state-led uh effort to abolish these sort of familial social relationships um in sort of in contradistinction to that i suppose it's worth trying to make a case for what it was or what it would be that it would the working class movement at this time was seeking to do if it did indeed aim to abolish the family um obviously the case against the family at this time was that women and children were locked into um a form of relationship which was obviously dependent on um a, a sole single male breadwinner um locked into marriage which couldn't be easily escaped from and so there was kind of like a privatization of a certain degree of either direct physical violence that could be perpetrated by men against their spouses or children but then also just uh, an economic dependence which could take on a form of like soft violence i suppose which likewise couldn't be escape from and it's in that context that the communist movement particularly at this early stage in the russian revolution what they wanted to do was socialize some of those things which were up until that point the private preserve of the family unit so i suppose like um domestic work laundry um making and consuming food um raising children aren't the sole responsibility of a mother locked into a house, locked into a home, potentially a threat of direct violence from their partner and without recourse to um, alliance with other, um, other women, but other members of the working class, other aspects of society. Um, and so it sort of becomes vitally important to, um, it's not it's not that the aim is to make the state responsible for things which are otherwise the responsibility of 
parents, but rather to um, allow people an escape from the potentially violent confines of the family. And the way to do that is to provide them what they need in other ways, um, whether it's in canteens or, or what have you. Yeah, I, two things I, I, I'd like to say on that. I mean, first of all, like we love a good canteen over here. The idea of a canteen is just like, oh, it's something that we like. It's a cool idea. And it's interesting because in this, you know, this was bought up when we read the um, the Schwang article, Sorghum and Steel, about the canteens in China and about how everybody basically wound up hating them. But it's like places where you can go to get free food. And so your basic need, that at least that basic need is net. Go and get free food. Even if you aren't working, that's fine. Well, maybe not in these societies, but that's kind of like my idea. But it's funny because under like in China and maybe I suppose in the Soviet Union when these existed, when there were like food shortages, people immediately started blaming the canteens, which were run by the state. And then the people who ran the canteens started giving out favorable treatment to other people. So it wound up just not being great. That's not how you run a canteen. But um, the other thing is just to say that like this was being done all of these things that you know collectivization of reproductive labor were being done pretty explicitly to just make more workers which is like maybe not the goal of you know communism is to just make everybody a worker and like oh yeah sure we'll like free women from the drudgery of domestic labor as long as they go and work in the factories it's like well okay that's not a particularly like that's a very grim view of human emancipation and also like this was all being done under the auspices of the state all of these things were being run by the state, which obviously was like a form that was kind of like alien to the actual working class itself. You know, despite all of whatever it said in the Soviet constitution, it was its own separate thing. So these were obviously being done, uh, you know, function of a system is what it does. They were being done for very specific reasons that might not have had the working class's best interests at heart. Um, as we can see by them all basically stopping, as far as I can tell, um, after a very short period of time. Yeah, as soon as the system needed something else, as yeah. soon as the system <laughs> needed a reliable workforce or um, to secure a certain growth in the workforce. What was interesting about this, actually, is because what I learned was that prior to reading this, my conception had been that a lot of the immediately enacted policies that were spearheaded by Kollontai just after the Russian Revolution, um, all of the most radical ones that you can think of, um, I always sort of imagined them being something which was gotten rid of as a result of Stalinism. But O'Brien makes the point or uh, says that um, a lot of these things were uh, consented to by the early Russian state purely and primarily under the conditions of um, the Russian Civil War. And it was sort of primarily under those conditions that they were allowed to continue. And immediately after the Civil War ended, these policies were opposed even by people like Lenin and things like that. So it's not that you could sort of like point to Stalin as being the person that destroyed this most progressive element of the Russian Revolution, but it was already being dismantled almost immediately um, by the other leaders of the Russian Revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And also just speaks to, I think, the nature of the kind of like 20th century workers movement, right? Such that it existed in the first half, at least, of the 20th century um, and the kind of things that it needed. Um, interesting that it's like oftentimes you hear China called it like the Chinese Communist Party called a developmental regime in the 20th century. 
it's, and generally all I kind of think of when I think of that is like building up the productive forces, but it is interesting. It's like, you can also think of, you know, the USSR and the Chinese communist party as like developmental regimes for like adapting the family form to to fit the needs of like industrial capitalism, which is a particularly like grim thought, but functionalism is what it does. But I mean, what I will say is like, you can't, what you can't take away from the Russian revolution is that brief period when it was the most progressive um social force on the planet and there were like even rights given to like gay, gay people and I, mean, I think that's pretty much about it obviously that all went away very quickly and that actually might have been because of stalin um i'm not entirely certain about that but for a brief shining moment it was very impressive um do we have anything else to say on the russian revolution or should we skip not that forward i can remember i'm hoping to <laughs> move on We'll move. Okay, so the next the next big periodization is the 1960s to the 1970s, um, and this is when we finally get a rejection of the workers' movement as such. And important again, again to recognize that, like when we say the workers' movement, when O'Brien says the workers' movement, she doesn't mean like uh, the class struggle. Those are not analogous things. The workers' movement, what she means here, is like the form taken by kind of like social democratic politics in the wake of kind of Kautsky and Babel and all of these different people and the idea of the class struggle as a way to like improve the condition of the working class, right? Through kind of like mainly electoral politics and strikes, things like that. Um, but in the 1960s and 1970s, you know, this is something that we are all familiar with. You start to get like very radical queer movements. You start to get radical feminists, um, and you get this, as I said, the rejection of the workers movement. And she basically says this takes four forms. She says that this comes about in the form of anti-masculinity, anti kind of straight nuclear family, anti-suburbs, which is really interesting. And then finally, and this is not something I really know anything about. She says that it also takes a form of anti-work, which when I first read that, I was like, is this end notes? Just kind of like adding <laughs> anti-work politics into something where it didn't exist. But it actually did does seem like it did exist in there. And I was surprised to see Sylvia Frederici kind of quoted as one of these anti-work people. So the one thing that I'll bring up just because I thought this was really interesting on that subject is the kind of along the anti-work nature of all of this, the wages for housework campaigns were are very important or very famous, right? In the history of kind of the 20th century as this idea of, hey, whether, you know, this gets into debates of like, well, is reproductive labor creating value, which I don't think is particularly like something that we're interested in here, but it gets into the point that's like, well, hey, I don't want just my husband controlling all of the fucking money that comes into the house, right? The patriarchal wage means that, yeah, the capitalists are paying for the maintenance of a working class family, but it's all just being controlled most times in a heteronormative family by like the guy, right? And that's not particularly cool because you look at all of the work that the kind of stereotypical domestic housewife is doing and was doing back then. It's like the most important work. It's the important, it's like the work of literally reproducing society and making sure that there are enough healthy and like functioning people to contribute to society. And so on the kind of like anti-work nature of the wages for housework stuff, I'm just going to quote Frederici here because she says, if we start from this analysis, we can see that the revolution, we can see the revolutionary implications of the demand for wages for housework. It is by the, it is the demand by which our nature ends and our struggle begins because just to want wages for housework means to refuse that work as the expression of our nature and therefore to refuse precisely the female role that capital has invented for us. So, I mean, that's much more radical than I thought that the wages for housework stuff was. And I mean, obviously there are still criticisms to be made of it. It still kind of leads to a reliance on wage labor. 
but I, I thought it was really interesting adding that element of anti-work stuff in there because it is true. Just by asking for a wage means I don't define myself as a housewife. I don't define myself, you know, as a woman, as somebody who was just born to like, you know, look after the kids and clean the house. You know what I'm saying? I, I thought that was really interesting. And I was like, oh, what do you know? There actually, there is an element of anti-work nature too. Well, now it sounds kind of crazy, but to requesting wages, you know, it's like, that is interesting, right? And it makes it something that, um, it makes it something that can be politically contested, right? I think that's sort of the argument is that like, you bring a sort of private form of labor out into the public, make it part of the um, public sphere in a way which can then be chosen or rejected um, by, by the worker themselves, I think. It also sort of intersects something which comes up a few times in this text as being um, something that's sort of constantly a contradiction with the workers' movement's relationship to the sort of like patriarchal breadwinner family is also a rhetorical commitment to the universal position of the proletariat, like all workers having a universal experience of being a worker um, and it sort of being that universal experience that binds them and makes them a revolutionary class and sort of gives them the potential to overcome capitalism. Um, I guess the wages for housework campaign also sort of like tied was in some ways an effort to connect workers and so that were otherwise like not recognized as such not recognized as being uh being in the same position i guess so it's interesting i suppose that 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 something which is in some ways presented as being opposed to the workers movement is also in some ways an appeal to at least some of its core assumptions i guess like it's still a political and it's still a revolutionary gesture which has an, a fundamentally anti-capitalist um, stance yeah and i also think that just it shows that at this point i mean it was always outdated but it shows just how outdated the chauvinism of the workers movement was right um like at this point people weren't like yeah i wish i was more bourgeois they were like wait now we have this thing and it kind of sucks <laughs> you know um yeah and, yeah go ahead no 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 Go ahead. Oh, I got well. nothing. <laughs> I don't know whether I've got anything either. But we'll, <laughs> we'll find out. Um, I mean, she makes the kind of like classic argument that's made about um, these sort of like new social movements, right? That um, the forces that are spearheading this new reaction and rejection of um, the the family as it's existed in the early parts of the 20th century. Um, those forces come from like the the emerging women's movement which we were just talking about which has sort of the critique of the family which i was describing before right of like um locking women into a potentially violent situation that they can't escape um and also she sort of pairs that social movement with um uh, a new movement for uh sexual liberation um and also um a new movement amongst um black women black women workers um who um this is a really interesting phase right because we're sort of like transitioning out of the jim crow era and suddenly um the african-american population of the of, of north america and of the united states are now being presented with this possibility right like um are we going to move to the cities um of the north and try and make some effort to be accepted into the working class 
uh, into the sort of white dominated working class into its political movements in the trade unions and parties um, but also tether ourselves or set our horizons on the middle class family as being the ultimate um, aim of the sort of like the uh, potentially new liberation that comes out of the end of the Jim Crow era and um, the end or the development of the civil rights movement. Um, she makes an interesting point that like um, one of the things that was inspiring a lot of black women was to sort of like reject that as a ultimate aim in and of itself. Um, similarly, you can sort of see why um, gay and lesbian and bisexual campaigners wouldn't want or wouldn't see any um, anything in initially anyway anything in the um, traditional family unit that was um, attractive. So it was this sort of like new melting pot of movements and ideas um, that were sort of like spearheaded this. Uh, new wave of critique of the family i suppose yeah yeah absolutely and i mean i there was one really cool quote in here from somebody named sylvia ray rivera who was a trans woman of color and where was she speaking she was speaking at she's speaking in 2001 about her experiences as an activist in the 1970s and in the 1960s like in the civil rights movement and in basically like you know other kind of like gender liberationist fronts and she made an interesting point here this is also just an incredibly fucking cool quote she says we were all involved in different struggles including myself and many other transgender people but in these struggles in the civil rights movement in the war movement in the women's movement we were all still outcasts the only reason they tolerated the transgender community in some of these movements was because we were gung-ho we were the frontliners we didn't take no shit from nobody we had nothing to lose okay just setting aside that that's incredibly fucking cool, very cool. <laughs> it's very cool it's an it's an interesting kind of like I don't know. There's something to be said there about just the way that these different struggles function and continue to function now, right? Where they're all very kind of isolated, like, okay, here's, you know, um, the radical feminist groups and here's the civil rights groups and here's kind of like the workers movement and here is, you know, the anti-war movement. It's just something interesting in terms there of like without the kind of like universal emancipation that comes along with socialism, it can be very difficult to kind of like coordinate all of these different struggles without this kind of like overarching thing of at least like some kind of egalitarian struggle. Right. And I think the only other thing to take away from that quote is just that like we are universal emancipators. So it's like, if you're a socialist and you're like, Oh, I don't want to work with this person from this organization or, or I look down on this person for X, Y, and Z reasons. It's like, you know, Take yourself seriously because like you see so much like reactionary bullshit, whether it's in like patriotic socialist movements or people who call themselves communists who are like anti LGBT rights. And it's just like fucking please like take yourself seriously. You know, the class struggle is more than just like wanting everybody to work in factories. And if that's what you want to do, you go back a hundred years in a time machine and, you know, get involved with that. But it was interesting. It made me, for some reason, it also made me think of like cybernetic organizing in a weird way and how you'd actually make that function, but that's a completely different subject that one day we'll talk about. <laughs> I don't know how much I have to say about the sort of decline of this movement. I think um, if that's the place where we want to go next, I think one of the things that the author of this text says is that in in connection with the the abolition or the refusal of work aspect of this movement um, was that... Well, there were two two things, I think two things that 
uh, they talked about in terms of the movement for the abolition of work. One of them, which is which you've said, is the campaign for houses, oh, houses, wages for housework, and the other one was directed toward, in the United States at least, um, transforming the sort of state benefit system so that um, it it was um, more universally available and didn't f- because it would sound it sounds like from my understanding and from reading this that so much of it was geared toward maintaining the the traditional family unit a lot of the benefits were only available under certain circumstances um tied toward forcing people into marriage and this kind of thing um and a lot of the campaigning was around universe, universalizing and making available those benefits to people that were living other types of familial relationships or in other types of social form whether that's like raising children as a single parent or i don't know living with siblings or living with parents or raising children communally or what have you um one of the things that o'brien says is that a lot of these campaigns couldn't really escape the necessity of appealing to the state as being the thing that would backstop um these things um and the other argument, a sort of analogous argument that they make is that um, they never develop a sort of like fully worked out critique of capitalism um, when it comes that they can sort of fully incorporate into their arguments. And so um, the family abolition movement as it exists in, in all of these various forms in this period of time uh, never settles on a well-articulated critique of capitalism, which for this text and for us like from reading this text you can see that the two are very fundamentally interwoven right there's like um aiming to do one without aiming to do the other is like um seeming is is contradictory and is um uh sort of like yeah it's a it's a false aspiration primarily because of what i was saying at the beginning right that like um and we're going to come on to this a little bit in the last chapters of the last section of this but like um existing under the wage form existing under conditions whereby your existence is determined and defined by market relations um, is a fundamentally perilous potentially um violent and um repressive condition um which lends itself very well with pairing with repressive and violent social and family arrangements um and so she's sort of making the case that there's a fundamental failing of this uh, this stage of the family abolition movement that they're not sufficiently critical of capitalism yeah absolutely i mean she says that you know the kind of like radical queer and feminist critiques of the family fail precisely because they kind of just expect voluntary action on the part of like different subgroups to kind of like destroy the family. Whereas you actually need to be looking at the underlying cause of a lot of this discrimination and the family in general, which is the family form a la 1960s and seventies, um, which is the, you know, underlying capitalist mode of production. Um, but now she, she leaves us on a really, really interesting note where she's like, Things have changed since then, and these critiques won't do for those reasons, but they also won't do because maybe even the phrase 
abolish the family won't do anymore because it's like what is the family anymore and i mean that kind of might sound stupid to anybody who's like you know grown up in like a shitty family whether you're gay or something or trans and you know your parents are like god damn this is no good in my family or something much more violent right like you might be like well obviously the family's still a thing but the reason that she periodizes this last period as the 1970s until now is because this is obviously kind of when the last great crisis of profitability has come about and when you start to see neoliberalism as a um, response to that. You know, we can argue about whether or not neoliberalism is still a thing anymore, but I think that it's important to start periodizing this new family phase in the 1970s when this all began, right? Because the family started to become, as she says, not a viable form. The male breadwinner family form started to not be viable anymore. So again, we see the family essence maybe or something like that start to take a new form. And now, you know, speak to any kind of like, not just heteronormative, but like any monogamous family unit in any major city. And they'll, you'll probably find two people engaged in wage work and not just the male breadwinner form anymore because people just can't afford it, right? Like, the wife can't afford to just stay at home and do all of these things. Um, and so you start to see the husband and the wife working at least one job, right, to keep up with the crisis of profitability. And I mean, alongside this, you you start to see some progressive things. I mean, you obviously start to see kind of, you know, different gender revolutions and people starting to feel like, well, maybe there actually is something more than just being a man or a woman and straight or gay, Right. And this kind of parallels the movement of the mode of production itself. But her kind of point is that things have very much changed. And the criticisms of the workers' movement, the criticisms of Marx and Engels about the family, and the criticisms of like radical queer and feminist critiques of the 60s and 70s just don't do anymore because what is the family now? Um, things have just changed so much that we actually need like positive proposals and that's kind of like the critique of all of this stuff other than Fourier which he has some very funny positive proposals for what family abolition might look like but there is just no positive vision and maybe you could say the workers movement had a positive vision for what the family would look like but it's just the family <laughs> you know what I mean so she's saying there actually needs to be a like new radical reorienting of what we mean by family abolition um, and it needs to be done through materialism which is really really interesting yeah, there's a really interesting pairing that um, she makes between the condition of the working class in relationship to familial relations that we're experiencing now in comparison to um, the early phase of the development of capitalism the that Marx and Engels identified as the destruction of the working class family. Um, because in, in the early 19th century and here in the early 21st century, um, you have a sort of proliferation of new social and familial and caring relationships that are, exist and are allowed to exist and are um, diverse and escape the the fixed dynamic of the sort of early twentieth century single breadwinner, um, single wage patriarchal family that we've been describing but the what they're adapting to and what they're um, allowing to exist is either in the first case new conditions of capitalism in the present case like new and developing conditions of the decline of neoliberalism and the present stage of um, 
declining profit rates and what have you. So um, what's a good example? Like we are now allowed to exist in, um, you don't have to, society doesn't look as poorly on single parent families as it used to. Um, but that said, um, and the fact that people are allowed and permitted and socially, it's, it's socially accepted for people to exist under that condition, um, that doesn't mean that those parents escape the pressures and the requirements to earn a wage. They don't escape market forces. Um, it's not like they're allowed to parent their children in the way which is most flourishing and beneficial to the child and to them and to their wider family. But no, like they suffer and the child suffers because they've still got to work or they um, exist on entirely insufficient state benefits or um, or things like that, or they rely on um, free childcare services that come from um, sisters or mothers or um, friends. So you do get this sort of like new proliferation of conditions, but they're um, potentially quite negative um, and they are an adaption to the conditions of capitalism and not to a revolutionary potential that's emerged from um, revolutionary struggle, I guess. Yeah, and exactly, because they might be positive nonetheless, some of these things. Mm -hmm. but... Yeah, we just don't know. It's kind of like that. Mm. What can emerge from this potentiality? At present, it's a, a response to capitalist conditions, but also does it... Is it somehow dialectical, I guess? <laughs> it's indeed. Is it? But is this somehow dialectical? <laughs> I mean, she, she puts it pretty succinctly. She gives two examples when she says a queer youth freed from a violent relationship with their parents might then be subject to the new risks of street-based sex work. Young mothers opting to m not marry their abusive boyfriends may find themselves working long hours in retail service under a sexually harassing manager. And it's like, well, yeah, that is capitalism, isn't it? And it's funny because I've often thought like, have kind of the different like gender revolutions and kind of like sexual liberation and radical feminist movements happened in the past century or so because of capitalism or kind of like against capitalism with capitalism or against capitalism, I guess. And it seems like she's saying here it's, it's both. It's, it's something like a dialectical approach, right? It's like capitalism in its decaying phase and in its kind of like socializing of production has led to certain freedoms that wouldn't have existed under feudalism. But then also like these are all still subject to the same market forces. It's like capitalism. I mean, this is kind of might sound like a silly thing to say, but capitalism in its most abstracted form doesn't really care if you're gay or straight. It doesn't really care what you are as long as you're a wage slave, basically. Right. And I mean, all of the superstructural outgrowths of like discrimination and stuff like that are obviously still extremely important and outgrowths of the mode of production itself. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, capitalism just cares that you're a worker. And until there is a radical, progressive, like, as she says, like queer communist politics, you're not going to get anything close to liberation, right? You're just going to get these kind of like little breadcrumbs that are actually still kind of fucked up because you're still a wage worker, right? On only other thing I guess to say is just that this last period has led to a massive commoditization of reproductive labor. Um, but I mean, that kind of ties into what we already talked about, right? About like women entering the workforce in ever greater and greater numbers. This means that the reproductive work is still getting done, but it's being done by more wage workers. So 
there is this kind of like weird dialectical thing going on where it's like women are free to work in the workforce, but oftentimes in social, in service jobs where they're actually just performing reproductive labor anyways, just for different people. Um, and so it isn't until this like gets really collectivized that you're going to have something good. Yeah. Or women are allowed to work in the workforce, but it's reliant on the labor of other, of other maybe immigrant women or queer women who like exist on the margins and who are are paid a poor wage to allow to facilitate um somebody else to for for to facilitate another household being um a two wage household family i suppose yeah um yeah it's interesting and she kind of pairs it she ties it into a development of neoliberalism right like under neoliberalism you have a sort of proliferation of um new markets and market conditions move into realms of life that they didn't used to exist in right so um uh, seeking profits i suppose and seeking to um i mean it's in in some ways i suppose maybe it's analogous to something that we would have come across in like jason w moore right like something that used to be peripheral becomes governed by the wage relation and in this case like it's almost like the wages for housework thing, but in it's sort of like capitalist and non-liberatory form, right? Like capitalism has got to the point where to overcome its profitability crises to some minor degree, it has to sort of like draw into the wage relation, into market relations, things that didn't used to exist in it so that it can somehow um, make an effort to extract, extract profits from it. I suppose, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on this, I suppose, because like... Um, you can extract efficiencies in a way that you maybe can't when social um, work is done in the household. Now, if it's done by a poor immigrant labor, you can um, repress and control that labor in a way which makes it potentially um, profitable. I don't know, but like that increasingly marketized, that cre increasing marketization of um, what used to be private social labor is in this part of the development of capitalist social relations, I suppose, um, as well as something which allows for all of the things we just described, like increasing numbers of women in the workforce and what have you. It is interesting. That's really interesting. I'd have, I'd have to think about that. I mean, this is just kind of like the logical endpoint of liberal feminism, right? It's like, we want women to be able to engage in the workforce. And it's like, then, you know, uh, you know, like a heteronormative couple go on to become like CEOs at some company so they can have a house in suburbia where like the immigrant from Guatemala is looking after their kids for fucking like 14 hours a day paid minimum wage. It's like, ah, yes, universal emancipators. We did it. I mean, I mean, that's the other half of this critique of um, the cultural revolutionary movements of the 60s and 70s that so many of them came to eke out a space within bourgeois society rather than continuing to be uh, a revolutionary opponent of that mode of production mm. it's funny it's funny too it's just like it, it gives me a little bit of hope just thinking about like it doesn't seem like we could have a repeat of the Chinese Communist Party or the Bolsheviks insofar as we're talking about like family abolition stuff because people no longer would really want to become part of the workforce in the way that they were offering, right? It's like, 
who the hell would listen to anybody that's talking about like full proletarianization? It's like, whoa. And that kind of, now I kind of understand a little bit more what the endnote situation and stuff is about, even if I'm still a little bit like, what? There's no real underpinnings here. But also maybe what we're witnessing is full proletarianization happening as a natural result of the development of capitalism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You're making. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. just like, nobody would listen to that because I already am a pro. What the fuck oh, are you talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Maybe there's, yeah, maybe there's something to be said there about communist strategy then. But I mean, I don't know. You can do worse than just considering yourself a universal emancipator as a socialist and just leaving it at that. It's like, obviously labor is like, you know, the most vitally important thing to our critique of capitalist society. But it's also like, if your boss has like a trans nephew and they're being hassled a lot, even if that trans nephew is a capitalist, you should probably want to like emancipate them from like the shitty existence of bigotry and like hatred. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Or at least like um, try and work out the ways in which um, any form of oppression is enabling the fundamental appropriative economic relation of whatever mode of production you're studying i guess and how necessary it is yeah yeah Yeah. interesting stuff interesting Mm. stuff yeah just the last thing was interesting where she was like oh and the reason that you're seeing so much like you know kind of like alienated man incel men's rights bullshit online is because these people are like seeing their you know these men are seeing like middle-class men are seeing their power slip away because of the destruction of the nuclear family and being like, damn, I wish I didn't have to do any of this reproductive labor. I wish I could control Mm. all the money. This sucks. (laughs) But yeah, but there is a, there is a more sympathetic reading you can have as well, I think, which is, and maybe it's, it's, it's um, championed a little bit in this text, which is like the, the sort of like patriarchal family facilitated the meeting the, the the meeting of um male need and that could that that could be negative right it could be like a need to be um important and dominant and domineering and oppressive but also it provided the sort of like the refuge of um like loving relationships you know it it, it, it provided care in a way which it's being removed as a likely outcome for the life trajectory of um, young men now without being replaced by something new and positive is only going to potentially breed resentment and um, anger and violence. And that's not to say that any of those things are justified, but just that like um, it's, it's, um, it's not wholly, it's not good enough just to sort of like critique that, but also um what you should be critiquing is how capitalism leaves us all um socially and emotionally deprived in some way or other and we need to overcome that mode of production if we're going to escape all of these any amount of violent reaction from men in the face of a diminishing uh social position for sure it's the same thing about how you deal with capital like individual capitalists right it's like hey I hate my boss just as much as the next guy, but it's like my boss is only my boss because of capitalism, right? Yeah. It's like you wouldn't actually solve anything by going and like killing your boss. <laughs> but also like it's the same thing about like shitty like men's rights activists. Activists. What the fuck am I talking about? Like assholes, <laughs> right? Men's rights activists. <laughs> 
dear. <laughs> I wonder if they. I wonder if EndNotes got any emails that we were like, just finished Emmy O'Brien's essay, but what about men's rights? <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, okay, I love. I thought this was really good. I honestly, great. I was like, this was kind of challenging because it was like not something that we've engaged with really in the past, and um, opened my third, not my third eye, opened my eyes. It was very interesting, um, and I think definitely this is stuff that like you need to engage with if you're a socialist, um, and it just makes those online debates about what you know abolish the family just that much more meaningless. Because it's, you know, as she says in here, abolishing the family just means abolishing bourgeois society. It doesn't mean like you will never know your parents. You will be born in the state sanctioned birthing facility and then, you know, you will never know your mother. Like, that's not what it means. It means bourgeois society needs to stop. And in that sense, it's not a particularly helpful phrase, but it's one that is shocking enough to kind of, you know, weed out the maybe people who aren't as serious (laughs) as the others. It's good stuff. Yeah. 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 I think we should try and seek out more texts like this, which are like, I mean, we've—I guess we've—we have covered them before, but like how some social phenomena intersects with the mode of production, um, and tracking its development through capitalism can only lead to a sort of broader understanding of um, the world and the sort of development of the social relationships that we live under, and a, a fuller understanding of the mode of production that we seek to critique and abolish. So, for sure. And you don't need to be an endnotes prick to read this stuff too. Even if you're like endnotes, I hate endnotes. But if you want to, come within a mile. Even if you want to, that's just funny. So, what are you gonna do? All right, Dan. Hang on. Oh, the time has come. Dan and I recently, we're using the same software we always have, but we're having to pay for it now because they changed the rules. And I have a soundboard now available to me, and the only sound is dramatic piano. There's one sound, and it's why just is dramatic that, why piano. Is, why is that the noise that they decided to Oh, because they probably think we have a true crime podcast oh, like right. everybody else. <laughs> oh, what are you going to do? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to start doing that every time. Instead of the outro music, it's just going to be that. that mm-hmm. well. Let us know what you'd like to be on our soundboard. Have you got any ideas? I made the suggestion of Louis Althusser saying, I am am an anarchist in Italian because that's one of my favorite communist sound bites. If you've got any better communist sound bites, send them our way. We'll put them in there. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Something from Star Trek. Something from Star Trek. Yeah. Some Noam Chomsky, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Something from Murray Bookchin. All the greats. (laughs) All right. Well, we've gone a bit long, Dan. That was very fun. Uh, Thank you for this. And uh, oh, I meant to make the joke at the beginning of this that this was our uh, Christmas holiday this, this, special, this the is family our abolishment. This it is, is our solstice episode. Obligatory solstice episode that we. It's not obligatory, but like I feel like every year on the episode closest to the solstice, we comment on the fact that you know. What day is the solstice on this year? Is it the twenty second? I don't know. Is it is it today or is it tomorrow or is it one of the next three? Days. I always say the twenty first, but um, okay. who knows? Well, I we cannot tell it. you the exact moment of the solstice, but when you are listening to this, you have almost certainly missed it. So <laughs> sorry. So too bad. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks again, Dan. Talk to you soon. See you, Jack. Bye bye. Thanks everybody for listening. It's been great. Hey everybody, Jack here. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. The song that you heard on this episode is Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. You can go ahead and check this song out much, 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 much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. If you want to go ahead and get in touch with us, chat shit, tell us that we're wrong, whatever you want to do, you can go ahead and do that at auxiliarystatements at gmail.com. You can just send us a message there. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, on Discord, on Instagram. You're a smart person. You can find these places. we got a YouTube. We post stuff there as well. Sometimes we stream. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time. Yeah.